Alrighty, hello, hello. Today I'm going to be talking about cell and tissue characteristics, which will be the lecture for May 14th for Pathopharmacology. So I'm going to start off with some of the important functional components of this cell. So of course we have the nucleus, which is the control center, and it contains all the information within the DNA that allow reproduction and the production of important things like proteins. The cytoplasm, on the other hand, is the area between the nucleus and the cell membrane. So this contains both the cytoplasmic organelles and the cytosol. So the cytosol is what we typically think of when we think of the cytoplasm, which is that kind of gelatinous, semi-liquid substance that makes up about 55% of the cell volume and contains those cytoplasmic organelles. Next up we have ribosomes. Ribosomes are synthesized within the nucleolus, which is a little part of the nucleus. They are the sites of protein synthesis and consist of two subunits, a smaller subunit and a larger subunit. During protein synthesis, these subunits will actually come together and combine with mRNA to allow the protein synthesis. The endoplasmic reticulum is an organelle that contains cisternae, which are flattened membranes to um, increase kind of the volume available. They are actually continuous with the nucleus, so they'll kind of extend out from one side of the nucleus. There are two types of endoplasmic reticulums, rough, which are studded with ribosomes, and smooth, which have no ribosomes. The rough endoplasmic reticulums are actually where proteins are secreted and produced. The smooth endoplasmic reticulums don't have the ribosomes, once again, so they do not synthesize proteins, they actually synthesize lipids, which include steroid hormones, and the smooth endoplasmic reticulum is also referred to as the sarcoplasmic reticulum, so smooth sarcoplasmic. Our next functional component is the Golgi complex. This also contains cisternae to once again increase that possible volume. The Golgi complex modifies the substances that are produced in the endoplasmic reticulum and packages them into secretory vesicles to um, transport them outside the cell. <clears throat> this process occurs via exocytosis, the way that substances are released into the body by the cell. This occurs by those vesicles that are produced in the Golgi complex. They approach the cell membrane, combine with the membrane, and then release the substances into the body. Lysosomes are our next component. Um, they contain powerful enzymes that can break down um, excessive and worn out cell parts, which is referred to as autophagy, phagy, and also foreign substances, which is heterophagy. We also have peroxisomes, which carry out oxidative reactions to break down peroxides and control free radicals. Um, they also break down fatty acids and help to make bile salts when they're present in liver cells. So I kind of think of this as peroxisomes break down hydrogen peroxide, aka free radicals. Next up, we have the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> so this is where cellular respiration occurs, which <clears throat> is a process that requires oxygen and is effectively changing carbon-containing nutrients into energy that cells are able to use. The mitochondria contains cristae, which increase the cell surface area so more cellular respiration can occur. Another unique feature of the mitochondria is that it contains its own DNA, mitochondrial DNA and ribosomes that are passed down in the maternal lineage. Mitochondria are also key regulators of apoptosis. Next, we have the cytoskeleton, which consists of microtubules and microfilaments. 
Microtubules control shape, provide strength, maintain that positioning of organelles within the cytosol. Um, they transport materials in the long axons of neurons and also contribute to cilia and flagella in cells like sperm cells. We also have the microfilaments that contribute to the cytoskeleton. We have thin filaments known as actin, intermediate filaments that help maintain shape, and thick filaments known as myosin. So as I'm sure we all remember from anatomy, this is kind of the parts of the muscle cell and the types of muscle cells that allow movement. So you can remember microfilaments allow movement. And those intermediate filaments help maintain shape. Finally, we have the cell membrane. So it's lipid soluble and semi-permeable, and it contains a bunch of different proteins kind of studded into it, including receptors, neurotransmitters, and transporters for ion exchange during action potential. These transmembrane proteins can actually function on both sides of the cell, so they span the entire width of the cell membrane. Next, I'm going to touch on a few different types of cellular communication in the context of thinking about integration of cell function and replication. So we have autocrine communication in which the cell produces the chemical that acts on, it, acts on itself. So if you're thinking about the ovary, the ovary produces estrogen and estrogen acts on the ovary. We also have paracrine communication in which the cell produces a substance that acts on nearby tissue. So it's kind of a local effect. Endocrine communication is when the cell produces substances that will later affect, um, enter circulation and affect distant organs and tissues. And finally, synaptic communication in which it produce, the cell produces a substance that's released at the synaptic cleft and hits an effector organ or postsynaptic neuron. So if we're thinking cell communication, a quick review, autocrine, it acts on itself, paracrine, it acts locally, endocrine, and intercirculation, and synaptic functions in the synaptic cleft. Next, we have a few types of cell receptors. So we have the cell surface receptors in which the protein is found within the cell membrane, and also the intracellular receptor in which the receptor is found within the cell. So those names are kind of self-explanatory. <laughs> So they can be activated, activated by first messengers or second messengers, which we'll explore in a little bit. And they're impacted by ligands, which are chemicals that bind to the receptors to elicit a change. This could be an ion or a hormone or an enzyme. So first messengers, just really quickly, they attach to the receptor and, act, and activate some sort of conformational change in a protein. Whereas the second messenger has its role after that process occurs. So the first messenger activates the receptor, the protein makes a conformational change, hits an enzyme, and then creates a second messenger. So the usual one in the body, the most typical second messenger, is cyclic AMP. <coughs> so cell surface receptors in general occur via a process. A messenger molecule will attach the receptor proteins on cell surface. These receptors span the entire cell membrane and signal transduction occurs, which is when the message is converted and moved across the membrane to affect the change within the cell. These receptors are actually regulated by the cell itself, which is a really neat process. So we have upregulation. So when there are really low levels of the messenger available in the body, the cell will release and produce more receptors so they can really maximize those low levels of messengers that are present. The cell can also downregulate the volume of receptors in which when there are really high levels of a messenger present, it can um, remove a number of receptors so that they're still receiving the message at the volume that the cell likes. 
I try to remember things in the context of concepts I already understand. So this kind of reminds me of nutrition. Um, when a body is anemic, you are going to be absorbing a whole lot more iron from the GI tract. Whereas if you have an excess of iron in the body, you'll be absorbing less. So the body can kind of take what it needs. So now our types of cell surface receptor proteins. So remember we have the cell surface receptor proteins and the intracellular receptor proteins. So our cell surface receptor proteins, we have the G protein linked receptors. These function as a sort of second messenger system. So the first messenger will impact the receptor, which will then cause the G protein to go through a conformational change. At this point, the alpha subunit of that G protein will react with an enzyme and create a second messenger, cyclic AMP, which will then cause the desired effect within the body. We also have enzyme-linked receptors, and this is when a substance hits the receptor and directly causes an enzymatic reaction. A good example of this is insulin. Um, when insulin hits the insulin receptor, it allows glucose transporters, GLUT4, to travel to the cell membrane and uptake glucose into the cell. So you see that immediate direct reaction. We don't have a kind of second messenger modifying things. The final type is ion channel linked receptors. These are particularly important because rapid ion exchange is completely necessary for cellular processes and allowing the cell to fire the way we think of in neuron cells. So because ions such as sodium and potassium have electrical charges, this makes it really difficult for them to pass through the lipid membrane since they aren't lipid soluble. Therefore, we have special protein channels that span the width of the lipid membrane. These proteins will undergo conformational changes and thus form open channels for the selected iron and allow them to pass through. So we have three types of ion channels, non-gated leak channels, ligand-gated channels, and voltage-gated channels. So non-gated leak channels are completely open. Um, they're not gated. There's nothing to prevent the ions from entering. So the ions move through these based on the concentration gradient. So from areas of high concentration to low concentration. So it's kind of a free flow. We also have ligand gated channels. So when the ligand hits the receptor, it can open the gate and allow ions to enter. So in that case, you just have the need for um, some sort of chemical to hit the receptor to allow ions to pass through. The last type is voltage-gated channels in which they're kind of electrically operated and they're opened by changes in the membrane potential to allow them through. So as a little review on the movement across the membrane before we dive into a little more detail on them, we have passive transport, which involves no energy. So typically this is the result of concentration gradients. So this is where you see diffusion, osmosis, in facilitated diffusion with carrier proteins. So this requires no ATP, can occur with no energy. We also have um, types of movement that do require energy. So here we have active transport, which include primary and secondary types, and also vesicular transport, things like endocytosis and exocytosis. And we'll dive all into all of those after a little fundamental information. It's important to remember when we're thinking about diffusion that all particles operate on spontaneous kinetic energy. So they're just moving around based on the spontaneous kinetic energy. And the really important factor here is that they always want to be, these particles always want to be in uniform concentration and equal distribution in their ideal scenario. So starting off with our first type of passive movement, we have diffusion. 
So diffusion is where particles move randomly away from the area where they are most concentrated in a uniform distribution. So it's important to remember with diffusion, you're thinking particles. Particles, you think diffusion. So this occurs with lipid-soluble molecules, such as oxygen, carbon dioxide, alcohol, and fatty acids. So we're seeing these particles moving from the areas of high concentration to low concentration with the intent of creating equal distribution and uniform concentration. We also have osmosis, in which this is the movement of water from a region of greater concentration to a region of lesser concentration. And the unique thing about osmosis is it actually depends on the particle concentration. So water is going to be moving from the area of low particle concentration to the area of high particle concentration. So when you see osmosis, think water. When you see water, think osmosis. Since we know that water is moving into areas of high solute concentration, the water is thus following the solutes. So solutes have this kind of pull on water, which is referred to as oncotic or colloid osmotic pressure. We also have facilitated diffusion, which requires the use of a carrier protein, but it does not require any ATP. This functions when you have non-lipid soluble proteins or large molecules that need help getting through the membrane. So they attach to a transmembranous protein. This is passive, so it can only move from an area of higher concentration to one of lower concentration once again. Now we have active transport. Active transport functions when you need to move particles or water against the gradient. So this occurs with the use of energy. Since some cell processes require uneven concentrations, for example, high concentrations of potassium are needed to carry out some intercellular processes. So this does require ATP, that energy as we specified. The first type of this active transport is primary active transport. Thus, ATP is used directly to move a substance against the concentration gradient. So you have one, one substance, um, such as moving sodium out or like the proton pump that occurs in the stomach. You also have a secondary active transport in which the energy created by the primary active transport is harnessed and used to facilitate the transport of a second substance. So in secondary active transport, the primary substance usually is sodium. And so you have two possible groups for this. You have co-transport or symport in which the secondary particle is moving in the same direction as the first particle. So they're moving together. For example, they're moving outside the cell into the cell. You also have counter-transport called antiport, in which the particle, the secondary particle is moving in the opposite direction of the first one. So a great example of this would be the sodium-potassium pump, in which sodium is moved out and potassium is moved in. We also have endo and exocytosis. Endocytosis is going to be the process of the cell uptaking um, particles or similar things. So for example, we have pinocytosis in which the cell uptakes small particles or fluid particles, and also phagocytosis in which the cell is uptaking larger particles or microorganisms and then degrading them. So it's often referred to as cells drinking in pinocytosis and eating in phagocytosis. You also have exocytosis, which we discussed a little bit earlier, but is generally the process of moving particles from inside the cell to outside the cell. All right, our next topic of the day is cellular metabolism, which is the process that provides fuel for cellular processes. 
It's basically converting protein, carbs, and fat to ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell. There are a couple types. We have anaerobic, which occurs without oxygen and is found in the cytoplasm, and also aerobic, which occur with oxygen and, and is um, carried out in the mitochondria. So I'll go over a quick review of this. Um, anaerobic respiration is the process of glycolysis or the glycolytic pathway. So once again, this occurs in the cytoplasm. So we start with the glucose molecule and in this process, we break up the glucose six carbon ring into two, three carbon molecules known as pyruvates. It requires an input of two ATP to function and re results in a net gain of two ATP, two pyruvate and two NADH molecules, which will later be used for energy if there's the presence of oxygen. If there's no oxygen, it proceeds to fermentation and will result in lactic acid through the oxidation of those pyruvate molecules. This is important because those pyruvic acid have negative impacts within the body um, as lactic acid and that's toxic to cells. We then move on to the Krebs cycle, which is part of that aerobic activity that occurs in the mitochondria. So in the Krebs cycle, this is found once again in the inner membrane um, and results in acetyl-CoA entering the cell. The main function of the Krebs cycle are to produce NADH and FADH2 and results in a net gain of 2 ATP. These ATP then enter the electron, or sorry, excuse me, the NADH and the FADH2 then enter the electron transport chain in which electrons are used to pump protons out which then diffuse back in via ATP synthase and produce ATP. This results in approximately 34 ATP in total. So this is a really important process. Um, it results in about 36 net ATP for every molecule of glucose. So that is profoundly more than the two net ATP produced through glycolysis. So when you have these anaerobic conditions and you can't go onto the Krebs cycle in the electron transport chain, you have this pyruvic acid. It once again binds with hydrogen and makes the lactic acid, which is toxic to the body. It results in metabolic acidosis in which the blood has a lower pH than is ideal. Under normal conditions, it's perfectly normal for the body to make acid and it's expected as a part of metabolism. However, the body is able to manage this volume of acid with buffers. However, without oxygen, you're unable to convert this acid and so it kind of leads to a, a self-perpetuating cycle where this lactic acid is causing damage and you're unable to buffer it. Moving on to the next topic, we have membrane potentials. These are found in both nerve and muscle tissues. So the changing electron gradients cause a number of cell functions, including the glandular release of hormones, muscle movement, and neurological functions. When we have this action potential occur, the cell is said to have fired. So what causes a membrane potential? This action potential or cell firing can occur in response to chemical activity like neurotransmitters, electric activity such as changes in ion concentration, or physical activity which is effectively direct stimulation and could be something like deep tendon reflexes. 
Just a quick overview of the basics of cell firing. So cells begin with a negative charge, which is considered and referred to as the resting membrane potential. So the inside of that cell is at baseline more negative than the outside. This is done intentionally via the sodium potassium pump. We then have a stimulus, which could be, as we discussed, chemical, electrical, or physical. And this allows sodium to gradually diffuse into the cell, making it more positive since sodium is a positively charged ion. The cell is then becoming increasingly more positive until it reaches the threshold potential, which is the point at which the sodium gates all open and sodium rushes into the cell and the cell becomes dramatically positive. This is the firing of the cell or the action potential itself. It's also referred to as depolarization. Since polar refers to kind of a dramatic difference between two things, such as the very negative inside of the cell and the less negative outside of the cell, we are depolarizing it. So the cell is reflecting kind of that more positive charge. After this point, the potassium channels open and potassium begins to diffuse out, making the cell negative again. This is called repolarization because you're causing that negativity in the cell once again. Then the sodium potassium pump will remove the sodium from the cell and pump the potassium back in. It's important to note this occurs at a ratio of 3 sodium to 2 potassium. So by pumping out 3 sodium for every 2 potassium brought in, it is making the cell more negative and repolarizing it. Moving a little more into muscle contraction itself, we have acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter that's produced at the neuromuscular junction to start contraction and bind to the receptors on the muscle cells. So kind of just a clinical application, if the acetylcholine receptors are destroyed, it'll result in flaccid paralysis or weakness since the muscle cells are lacking the neurotransmitter that would activate contraction. This can be seen in diseases such as botulism. If you block acetylcholinesterase, which is the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine, the, cell, the muscle cell would constantly be receiving the stimulus to contract, so it would result in tetany or constant muscle contraction. This is something that you see in tetanus. Another aspect of muscle contraction is that contraction uses energy. So myosin needs ATP to pull the actin, and it also needs ATP to let go of the actin. So this can actually explain the phenomena called rigor mortis. So we have the myosin that uses the ATP to attach the actin, and the myosin obtains new ATP to let go of the actin to move forward. So without oxygen after death, you can't make the ATP and the myosin can't detach. So you have rigor mortis in which the entire body stiffens and the muscles are in a state of contraction. Finally, the last important component of this muscle action potential is calcium. So the process begins with calcium attaching to troponin. Troponin naturally blocks the actin binding site. So when you have the calcium that attaches, it causes a conformational change and the troponin and tropomyosin move off the actin binding site. This frees it up to allow myosin to attach to the actin binding site and allow muscle contraction and movement. That is all the content for this lecture. Thanks so much.